I'd like to direct your attention this morning to the fifth chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians. Took a couple weeks break during the Easter season from 1 Corinthians, but this morning we come back to chapter 5. First Corinthians chapter 5, and I'll be reading all 13 verses. Hear the word of God. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though I am absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread, of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of their world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. But what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. One of the biggest scandals in the history of the visible church has been going on for well over a decade now. It's the abuse of children by priests in the Roman Catholic Church. It's like a nightmare that seems to never end. Of course, it all hit home a lot more closely recently when the news broke that the same kinds of horrific sins were going on for decades in the Altoona-Johnstown Diocese of the Catholic Church. As shocking as those sins are, even worse sins were committed by the hierarchy of the church. Church leaders who not only tolerated the abuse, not only tolerated it, but worked hard to cover it up and to keep those offending priests in circulation. Now, I'll admit, for many years, I would hear these reports, and I would shake my head and say how terrible it was, but in the back of my mind, I was always thinking, yeah, but that's the Catholic Church, that's not us. 
I think that's a naive response. First of all, it's not like evangelicals and even Reformed and Presbyterian leaders have not had their share of scandals in recent years. We have a log in our own eye that we need to deal with. But secondly, the world doesn't make the distinction between Catholic and Protestant when they hear about these kinds of sins. The world doesn't make the distinction between conservative and liberal. They just associate it with the church. And that's what Christians are like in their mind. You know, as terrible as these scandals are, it's not that scandals are that much worse in the church these days. There's always been scandals in the church, as long as there's always been sinners, and sinners are sinners in every age. But I do believe that the church is responding in a way to these kinds of sins that is far more despicable than what we've seen in the history of the church. The church is not responding to sin in its midst as the Lord would have us respond. In this passage that we're looking at this morning, it's a difficult passage. And Paul tells us how to speak the truth in love in confronting sin in the midst of the church. If you remember a few weeks ago when we looked at chapter, the end of chapter 4, at the very end of chapter 4, Paul issued a very stern warning to this very troubled church in Corinth in the first century. Verse 21 of chapter 4. He says, what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? As he's been pointing out, sin issue after sin issue in the Corinthian church, he finally gets to the point where almost in frustration he says, what am I going to find when I get there to visit your church? Am I going to find a church that's hearing this rebuke from the word of God and is repenting? A church that needs to be comforted in the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Or am I going to find a church that has stiffened its neck, that's unteachable and stubborn in its sin? And therefore, when he comes, he's going to have to come with discipline, with a rod, with tough love. You see, Paul, in that last verse in chapter 4, is giving a segue into maybe one of the more difficult topics that he needed to address in this very troubled church. He had received reports, and obviously they were very credible reports. Obviously he had investigated these reports that there was a man in the Corinthian church with an alternative lifestyle that was being accepted by the Corinthian church. As Paul puts it, a man has his father's wife. In that day, that's the way they talked about a stepmother. A man was sleeping with his stepmother, something that the law of God clearly condemned as incest. Paul says, interestingly, it's a kind of sexual immorality that is not tolerated even among the pagans. I mean, you know what we've been saying about Corinthian culture. How shocking does the sin in the church need to be where you could shock the Corinthians by your sexual immorality? Of course, even today, in this cultural context, people would be shocked by that kind of incest. It's bad enough when the church, the people in the church, violate God's standards and are tolerated and unrepentant. 
But how much worse is it when those in the church violate man's standards, which are so far lower than God's standards? And that's what Paul was facing in this church. This fifth chapter is devoted to showing why discipline, church discipline, is so important to the health of the church. Now, I apologize to any who may have been reading ahead to see what we might be studying today, and we're intrigued by the idea of how Pastor Dan would handle a passage on incest. But I hate to tell you, that's not the main point of the passage. It's not. The real issue that Paul is addressing here is how should the church respond to unrepentant sin in its midst? That's the issue in this passage. How should the church respond to unrepentant sin among its members? We don't hear much about church discipline these days. I think probably the main reason we don't hear much about church discipline is because not only do church members not take membership very seriously, but I don't think church leaders take membership seriously these days. And if you don't have a high view of church membership, you're not going to see the importance of church discipline. The two things go hand in hand. Jesus gave the prime directive to the church. He spoke to the church, which was made up of his disciples after his resurrection, and he gave them this directive. He gave them the, the Great Commission. He said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And we hear that and we tend to think of the job of the evangelists. We tend to think of the job of the missionaries to go out and make converts. But he didn't say go and make converts, did he? He said go and make disciples. And a disciple is not just a convert. A disciple is not just a student. A disciple is not just a club member. A disciple is someone who has made a whole life commitment to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and a covenant or vow to the church. And so scripture tells us that we are to make disciples in the church. Everything we do is about making disciples. And the scriptures tell us to instruct one another. It's not just a job of the one in the pulpit or the one at the head of the class. It's the responsibility of all Christians to be instructing one another. It tells us over and over in the New Testament we are to be instructing one another. But instruction in the New Testament sense of the word is a much broader concept than what we tend to think of, especially in an academic community like this. By instruction, yes, Paul means, or New Testament writers mean, that we are to be taught the information that is in the Word of God, to be taught the principles of the Word of God, to be taught practical application of the Word of God. Yes, we are to be instructed in that sense. But if you follow through the New Testament, you find out in a hurry that instruction is more than just being taught in a lecture. The word instruct in the New Testament Greek means also to confront it means to admonish. It means to counsel. It means to rebuke. It means to warn. This is what it means to instruct one another in the church. It's the kind of instruction you associate with a family, isn't it? That's the kind of instruction that happens in a family. Not just teaching of principles, but 
warning, counseling, admonishing, rebuking. We get into each other's business in a family. And this church is a family. Everyone likes the idea of the church being a family. We have very romantic ideas of our church being our spiritual family. But there can't be a family without accountability in our instruction. No family on earth operates without accountability. I mean, think about it. What if when you were a teenager and your parents rebuked you or warned you or instructed you and you decide you didn't like what you were being instructed, you didn't like the warning, and so you decide to pack a bag and walk three doors down and knock on the door and ask that family if you could be a part of that family and what if they warmly accepted you into their family? What if we all had that option as teenagers that we could avoid discipline by just going three houses down and joining that family and be warmly accepted? Would any of us have ended up in the family we were born into? Of course not. But that's what the church families are like today. Whenever you hear something you don't like, when you get rebuked for something, when you get disciplined, just head down the street. There's another church down there that will warmly accept you and add you to the role. You see, until not only members take the commitment of membership seriously, the commitment to be a disciple, teaching disciples and being taught by disciples, not until that happens will membership be taken seriously, but not until leaders take membership seriously is it going to make a difference. In the PCA, our denomination, we have what we call a book of church order. I'm sure you all read that for late reading on a Wednesday evening. But in the PCA book of church order, it takes the teaching that our Lord gave us in Matthew 18, and it talks about what does church discipline look like. And what's interesting in that chapter in the book of church order, what it says is that discipline in the church begins with the preaching and teaching of the leadership of the church. That's where discipline begins. Because again, it has this all-encompassing concept of instruction. It begins with the preaching and teaching of the church. But what happens when a member in the church either disobeys the teaching of the word of God or rejects some key doctrine of the, of the word of God, what happens? Well, according to Matthew 18, according to our book of church order, the next step is for someone to go privately, one-on-one, -on -one, to warn the person in love, in gentleness, say, this sin is going to lead you far astray. You're wandering. You need to come back to the truth. You need to repent. Not in prideful judgmentalism, but in loving concern for a family member who's going astray, just like we would in our own physical families. And if that sinner persists in that sin, then you are to find another brother or sister, or maybe a couple, and take them to talk to the offending, wandering member of the church. And if they will not listen to that, if they will not turn from their sin, if they will not repent then you are to take it to the elders of the church. And the elders of the church at that point will enter into the process of discipline. They'll go and warn and confront and rebuke in love and gentleness and concern this wandering sinner. And after many, many appeals and pleadings and counselings, if that sinner refuses to repent, what Jesus says in Matthew 18, what Paul is saying here is, you need to put that person out of your fellowship. 
You need to excommunicate them. It's the last resort in pleading with a brother or sister who professes the name of Christ, pleading with them to turn from their sin for their own good. In verse 11, Paul says, don't even eat with such a one. Now that could mean normal Christian hospitality and fellowship, but it probably in this context means the Lord's Supper because that's what excommunication is. Excommunication is removing the privilege of receiving the mark of being a member in good standing of the church of Jesus Christ, which is the Lord's Supper. You receive the mark of baptism when you're brought into the church, and then the Lord's Supper is the ongoing mark of belonging to Christ and to his church. And so if someone is unrepentant after all of these loving, gentle, persistent approaches, the last resort is to say you're not welcome at the table because you are acting as an unbeliever. And our Lord would have us treat you accordingly. In that book of church order, it says there are three purposes to this church discipline. The first one, according to the BCO, is to show the holiness and glory of God before the world. The second purpose is to preserve the purity of the church. And the third purpose is to rescue the unrepentant sinner. What's interesting is, obviously, our forefathers in our denomination to put that book together were studying closely 1 Corinthians 5 because all three purposes are in this chapter. Let's take them in reverse order because that's how Paul presents them. First of all, church discipline is for the rescuing of the sinner. It's an act of love and grace, not an act of judgment and justice. It's important that the church understand. The world's never going to understand that. The world is going to say we're judging. The world's going to say we're being harsh and mean. But in the church, we know that church discipline is an act of a loving church family, an act of grace and mercy, not an act of justice. In verses 3 and 4, Paul says, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The purpose is to save the spirit of the man who is wandering and going astray. You know, I can't imagine a more ominous statement for the leadership of a church to make than to have a declaration of excommunication. Because Paul, the language of Paul here is that when you excommunicate a professing member from the visible church of Jesus Christ, what you are saying to that sinner is, we are handing you over to Satan. We are handing you over to follow after the sinful desires that have led you astray. We are handing you over to live in that dark reign of the prince of the power of the air. In the hope that the resultant suffering is going to lead you to humility and conviction of sin and seeking restoration to Christ in his church. We are handing you over to Satan. What an ominous thing to say. Paul uses the same language in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20, where he speaks of Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Handed them over to Satan so that they may learn the consequences of blasphemy, that they might repent and be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. You can't hear this language of handing a professing believer over to Satan without thinking of the Old Testament story of Job. Now, in Job's case, it wasn't disciplinary. 
But that's the language, that's the picture that's given in Job, is that the Lord himself handed Job over to Satan for a, for a time. Not as discipline, but as a test of his faith and an opportunity for him to show his faith to Satan, to the angelic realm, to the world. His faith, which was a gift to him from God. It's similar in the sense that the purpose that the Lord had in handing Job over to Satan for a time was that he would be humbled, and certainly he was at the end of the book, that he would be humbled and more deeply committed to the Lord. And that is the same purpose for church discipline, that the sinner might be humbled, brought under conviction, and come back restored and more deeply committed to the Lord. You know, in Job's story, Do you know what Satan's purpose was? Satan's purpose when the Lord handed Job over to him was to cause Job to curse God and die. And so his purpose was 180 degrees opposed to the purpose of the Lord. Think of the story of the prodigal son. Isn't that really what the father did in the story of the prodigal son? He turned his son over to Satan for a while. He warned him, but when the son left and went to live for wine, women, and song when he gave himself over to the ways of the world, the, Lord, the, the father let him go. And when that son hit rock bottom at the bottom of a pig trough, longing after the pig's food, then he was humbled. And he came back to his father, convicted, and more deeply committed to his father and his family. And he was restored to the full rights of a son. In Matthew 18, Jesus says that when we cast somebody out of the fellowship in an act of church discipline and of excommunication, he says, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. The Jewish way of saying a pagan or an unbeliever. Treat him as an unbeliever. It doesn't mean you sit and judge him and reject him and shun him relationally. You treat him as an unbeliever. You treat treat him the same way you treat your unbelieving neighbor or your unbelieving co-worker. You're kind, you're gentle, you respect them, you show them love and you point them to Christ. That's how you treat the excommunicated. Paul describes it in this way in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. He says, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, if anyone doesn't accept the word of God that we are giving you as, as Christ's apostles, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. And there's that tension. Have nothing to do with him. Well, obviously, he doesn't mean that in the exhaustive sense. Otherwise, how would you warn him as a brother if you have nothing to do with him? What he means is, do not treat him as a fellow brother or sister in Christ. Treat him as the unbeliever that his life reflects that he is. Whether he may be just a believer who's fallen away or maybe never was saved and needs to come to be converted to Christ. Still, as he's been cast out of the church, you treat him with love and respect as an unbeliever who needs to be pointed to Christ. Because that's the purpose of church discipline, is to rescue the sinner. It's a family member. Sometimes family members need tough love. 
Secondly, church discipline is for the protection of the church. You see this in verses 6 to 8. Paul there uses a baking metaphor. He talks about leaven, or what we would call yeast, and bread dough. And he talks about how leaven would spread through the entire bread dough. And he, he throws up that visual image. Now, part to understand this, you have to understand that in first century Jewish culture particularly, when you bake bread, when you were done baking, you would always save a little portion of the dough, the bread dough, because it had leaven in it from the time before. And you'd always save a little bit so you'd still have leaven in the next baking. The next time you went to bake bread, you'd have that little portion of dough that had leaven in it. And that way you'd combine it with the new dough, and that way the leaven would spread. And that's how you kept leaven in the house. The problem is, over time, that leaven would go bad. It would get infected with bacteria, and if you put it in the new dough, it would actually ruin the, the bread. And so bad leaven, when it spreads through the bread, destroys and ruins the entire loaf. And so that's the image that Paul's throwing up here. He's saying that's what sin is like in the body of believers. If you allow sin to continue in the body of believers, it will spread. And ultimately, it will destroy the church. If you tolerate and turn a blind eye to unrepentant sin in the midst of the church. Let me ask you, though, what sin is Paul relating to leaven in the church in Corinth? Your first inclination is to say the incest. After all, he's telling the church to put out the man committing incest. And so your first inclination is to say, well, he wants them to put out the man who's committing incest so that you get the sin out of the church. Look at the context more carefully. He's not talking about incest. He's talking about pride. Look back at verse 2. In verse 2, Paul begins by rebuking the church for tolerating the sin. He says, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn in the face of this unrepentant sin in your midst? You are arrogant. And then, right before he uses the illustration about leaven and dough in verse 6, he says, your boasting is not good. Pride is the sin in the church that he says has to be put away. The sin, of toler- the, the sin of tolerating sin. The pride that motivates the church to tolerate and accept sin in its midst. I mean, face it, it's not likely that incest would have spread to the other members of the church very rapidly because of this man's sin. It could happen, but that's not, probably not the big issue in the church. But the pride that caused the church To not confront the sin is what was deadly to the church. And that's what Paul's addressing. We've already seen that pride was a big problem in the Corinthian church. Paul has addressed it in a number of different ways already. And he'll continue to address it in the rest of the book. But remember at the beginning we said one of their biggest issues was that they were prideful in their worldly wisdom. They They were prideful in the way that their thinking reflected the thinking of the pagan world around them. And so it's not hard to imagine that the sin of pride that he's addressing here is that they were rejecting what God's word said, what scripture said was right and wrong, and thought that they had greater worldly wisdom, they were smarter, they were arrogant in rejecting God's word. That's why they were tolerating the sin. And I can't think of anything more relevant in the broader church today than thinking that you're so arrogant that you know better than what the Word of God says, and you're going to tolerate sin even if the Word of God says it's wrong. I mean, take a drive down College Avenue. 
and you will see a church, a beautiful stone church that has a big rainbow banner over the door that says God is still speaking. I know what they mean by that. They mean we don't have to listen to what's in the word of God, the scriptures, because we know better. And so what's the result of that? Well, the motto of the church is we are an open and affirming church. Affirming of what? Affirming of what God's word says is a sin in the sight of him. That's what happens when you think you're smarter than the word of God. That's what happens when you tolerate sin because of pride. And it destroys the church. It destroys the church because pride and the gospel don't go together. The word of God and the gospel go together. And so Paul points them, you notice how he does that? He points them back to the gospel. He says, you really are unleavened. He's talking to the whole church in Corinth. He says, you are unleavened. What's he mean by that? He doesn't mean they're sinless. He means their sins have been forgiven. That sin has been put away once for all at the cross. That's what he's referring to because he goes on to say, for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. You know, he's talking about leaven in the dough, and of course that brings to mind the whole Passover celebration. And during the Passover celebration, you spent a lot of time putting all the leaven out of your household. It was a symbolic act to talk about a commitment as a member of the Old Testament church to putting sin out of your life and putting sin out of the church. And so Paul draws upon that imagery, and he says, remember that our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. The price for our sins has been paid. We are righteous ones, not because we're righteous in ourselves, but because we're robed in the righteousness of Christ and all of our sin and shame and guilt has been put away because our Passover lamb, the lamb who takes away the sins of the world, has been crucified. So we are unleavened, we are clean. You realize the point that Paul's making under the surface here is that the church must take unrepentant sin in our midst seriously because the gospel takes our sin seriously. Our sin is so offensive in the sight of our holy God that he had to send his perfect son to pay the price for us and only he could pay that price of the eternal wrath of God that our sins deserve. That's how seriously God takes our sin in the gospel. And so he says, in light of that, the fact that your Passover lamb has been crucified, take this sin seriously in your midst. Do not tolerate it. Repent. Clean out the old leaven. Or as Paul would say in Romans 6, how can we who died with Christ to sin still live in it? How? Which brings us to the third purpose of church discipline, which is that church discipline reflects the glory of God before the world. Church discipline reflects the glory and the holiness of God before the world. You know, he mentions in verse 9 that he had written to them earlier in an earlier letter that we don't still have. He, says, he said in that letter, do not associate with sexually immoral people. And from what he says here, what it sounds like is that the Corinthians heard that and they said, wait a minute, we live in Corinth. <laughs> what do you mean, don't, don't hang out with sexually immoral people? You know, they're all around us. So they must have laughed off Paul's instruction, but Paul says he misunderstood. I'm not talking about retreating from the world and setting up some holy bubble and not having any interaction with pagans and unbelievers. What I'm talking about is if someone who goes by the name of brother or sister in Jesus Christ is living in unrepentant sin, do not associate 
Do not be unequally yoked, as he will say in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Do not treat them as family members. Put the sin out of your midst. In verses 12 and 13, he makes it clear that we are to leave the judging of the sins of the unbelieving world to God. And I'm still wrestling with what he means here. But he's making the point very strongly of saying it's not our job to judge unbelievers for their sin. They serve false gods. They're not born again. They don't have a new nature. Don't judge them for their sins. That's not your job. God will judge them. It's not that they won't be judged, but God will judge them. That's his job. He's saying we are called to discern sin and to judge sin within the walls of the church. That is our job because we're a family. Because family members don't let family members run out and play, with, play kickball in the street with heavy traffic. That's not what you do if you're a family member. We have to hold our brothers and sisters in Christ accountable. We represent the one true God who scriptures tell us is a holy, holy, holy God. And we represent him before the world. And when the church refuses to hold its members accountable and refuses to call them to repentance and actually tolerates their sin and even worse, affirms their sin, we actually push people away from God. And we violate the prime directive of the church. In Ezekiel, if you've ever read Ezekiel's prophecies, when he confronts the Old Testament church for its sin, he keeps using the phrase, he says, you have profaned the name of the Lord in the sight of the nations. And I can't, second to excommunication, that's probably the second most ominous declaration of scripture. You have profaned the name of the Lord in the sight of the nations. I don't know if you saw it or not, but the film that won Best Picture last year and won the Oscar, it's a film called Spotlight. Very good movie, very well done, not easy to watch because it's about the reporters at a Boston newspaper who fought tooth and nail with civil authorities and ecclesiastical authorities to bring to light the abuse of children by Catholic priests and the cover-up by the Catholic hierarchy. But the saddest moment in that movie for me was late in the movie when two of the reporters, and all the reporters on that team were lapsed Catholics, interestingly, and two of the reporters on that team were talking to each other just informally about what impact their investigation into all this had had upon their own lives. And the one reporter says, until this scandal, I always thought I'd go back to church one day. And I thought, what a sad statement, because that is what happens when the church hides sin instead of confronting it and dealing with it through the gospel. Matter of fact, I read a re a, an interview with some of the real-life reporters later, and one of those reporters said, at that time I was a lapsed Catholic, now I'm super lapsed. That's the impact of shunning church discipline. In Colossians 3.16 it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. 
teaching, counseling, rebuking, warning, in gentleness and love, because that's what the love of a family does. I've been a part of four excommunications in the past decade or so as, part, as a leader in the church, not this church, but two churches altogether. And all four of them were gut-wrenching through the entire process and the saddest experiences that I've ever had in the context of assembling of God's people in church. But one of them was a precursor to one of the most joyous experiences I've ever had in a gathered church. Because in one of those cases, it was a young woman who was a member of the church and got involved in an extramarital affair. And when members of the church confronted her, she didn't repent. When it was brought to the elders of the church, we confronted her, we counseled her, we pleaded with her many, many months of calling upon her to repent. And she wouldn't, and finally turned her back on us and wouldn't communicate with us. So we excommunicated her in obedience to what God's word teaches. Very sad, but a few years later, I got a call one afternoon from this young woman. And she said, she was crying, and she said, I want to come back. I recognize what I did was awful. I want to come back. I want to, I want to be right with the Lord. I want to be right with the church. That started conversations. It took a few days, a couple weeks, but finally we had her come and stand before a congregation like this and read a letter of repentance, tears flowing, but joyful repentance, apologizing to the church for her sin, not only her sin against God, but her sin against the church, and joyously she was received by the fellowship of believers there. I, I just, I'll never forget watching the church immediately, like in the story of the prodigal son, immediately embrace her. And she was restored to the full rights of membership, of fellowship, of ministry. She was restored by grace. You see, that's the way it's supposed to work. I wish I could say it happened more than once. Actually, I wish I could say that we exercised church discipline more than four times in the last decade because I think if we really were being diligent, we'd be doing it more often than that. James 5, verses 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the grace of church discipline. Forgive us for not pursuing it, either as just the responsibility we have as brothers and sisters to one another to confront in a loving and gentle way, or as leaders in the church to confront unrepentant sin. Lord, forgive us for our failings and inadequacies, but Lord, may we be more committed not only to the word of God, but to obedience in our own personal lives and helping our brothers and sisters to walk in obedience as well. Thank you, Lord, that we do not fight this fight alone, that we are a part of a church family that is in submission to your word, that loves the Lord Jesus Christ, and is seeking to be faithful to that great commission to make disciples through all the world. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.